Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is an exciting half hour of science on the radio. Let me tell you that we have a bloody good show for you today. Can I just say that? Because we've got some bloody stories. Bloody good stories? Well, bloody good stories and a bloody good interview. Hello, Claire. Hi, Chris. We have um, a bloody good interview today. I'm actually chatting to Ollie Barrand, who's a science communicator, and also um, a blood donor, and a bone marrow donor. Did you know you can donate bone marrow, Chris? I have heard of this concept, yes. You have heard of it? Are you on the um, registry? I, I'm i not sure. I've, I know that I have sent off forms at various points, <laughs> oh, but I oh, cannot yeah? find the paperwork. Right, okay. <laughs> So I don't know. It is out of your reach at the moment. Out of my reach at the moment, yeah. Right. Well, um, well, Ollie Barrand is a um, he is a bone marrow donor, and he has donated bone marrow, and only one in every three thousand people who sign up to be a bone marrow donor ever has to actually donate bone marrow. It's a very um, it's a very rare thing that you would have to do, even if you you know re- were registered um, for this. So he's going to talk us through the process that he went through um, donating his marrow um, and you know saving someone's life um, and the science behind it. Great. Yeah, yeah. So it actually um, helps um, leukemia. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, and in other bloody news. Um, other bloody news, yeah. I, well, I'll be speaking to Dr. Jennifer Walker-Smith from Melbourne Museum about, remember the not too long ago, there was a young guy who stuck his legs in the water and got bitten by mysterious creatures and there's his bloodied legs were all yes. across the internet. Yes, and yes. then um, and I think it was his dad maybe who um, recorded like took a sample of these creatures and then put some meat into the water where these creatures were. And um, there's this crazy YouTube video of these creatures eating the raw meat. It yeah. is gross. Yeah, yeah. So well, are you going to be talking to her about that? I am going to find out what the creatures were and whether we should be afraid, basically, whether we should be scared to go back in the water. Um, and should we? Well, you'll have to you'll have to listen and find out, Claire, but... Um, let's just say you are looking safely dry at the moment. <laughs> Get on with the bloody show. All right then, on with the show. So you know you can donate blood, but did you know you can sign up to donate your bone marrow? I have with me in the studio Ollie Barron, science communicator and bone marrow donor, um, here to share his experiences and the science of bone marrow donation. Ollie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me in, Claire. It's uh, very exciting to be to be here. Well, it's very exciting to be in the presence of a bone marrow donor. Let me tell you, oh. I think you're the first person I've ever met who who has donated their bone marrow. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Well, I maybe I may be the first that you're aware of. That, but there I, I think that maybe others may quietly <laughs> wandering around throughout society. Um, so, well, firstly, let's start off by. Um, the question, why do people need to bone, to donate their 
bone marrow. Why and why do people need transplants? Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a pretty pretty good place to start. I guess uh, the the need for bone marrow donation um, comes up from people who are suffering from leukemia. Basically, are right. the most common bone marrow uh, donation recipients, um, and in particular, a bone marrow donation becomes necessary for someone suffering le- from leukemia when all of their treatment options have been exhausted. So there are a number of, you know, different treatment options. um, But uh, when, you know, obviously when it's a really severe case, um, when, yeah, when all the, you know, conventional methods have had no effect and the, you know, the disease is still, you know, doing doing damage to a person a bone marrow donor uh, a bone marrow donation um, is basically the last resort it's the last ditch effort to save a person's life wow so it is um, extremely important yeah incredibly important incredibly important um, so can you talk us through your experience of donating bone marrow yeah so um, so actually another really important thing to mention um, up front as well is that um, in order for a match to be made between a donor and a recipient who's in need of a transplant it's actually incredibly rare for a match uh, to happen um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head but it basically has to do with the fact that it is far more specific than say a blood donation um, it's it's actually uh, dependent on your tissue type. So it's, um, you know, perhaps uh, analogous to donating an organ to somebody. Wow. Uh, so, uh, so the need for, you know, to have as many people as possible on the bone marrow donor register is, you know, is really, really great because if someone is in need of, of a donation, you know, if they're on death's door and this is their last chance, um, then... Uh, the chances you need of, as many options as possible. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. The chances are incredibly slim of of finding a match. So you found out about it when you um, when you went to give blood, or is that like how do you how did you find out about it initially and decide that you wanted to put yourself on the register? I actually found out about it from a friend of mine who um, was studying medicine at the time. Right. A friend who um, I played uh, underwater rugby with. This strange sport that I'm into. Um, and yeah, we were just out at dinner after training with a bunch. of friends and yeah he, he told us about the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry which is the you know official body that um, that uh, keeps a catalogue of bone marrow donors and facilitates the whole donation process um, so he said you know it's it's super easy to, to sign up for it if you donate blood then you can sign up for the bone marrow donor registry next time you you're in for a blood donation you just tell them hey i want to sign up for this bone marrow donor registry and they simply you know when they're doing the blood collection um you know when they're doing the the initial tests and things they just take an extra little sample of your blood and they send that off so uh, yeah so that's how i signed up and that was um probably uh, you know over four years ago now uh and then um, I forgot about it for a couple of years, and then out of the blue, I just got a call uh, from the from the bone marrow donor registry saying, "Hey, you have been you have come up as a match for a person who is in need." Wow! And yeah, it was it was like crazy. I was like, "Wow, okay, uh, here we go." <laughs> yeah, here we go. But you know, from that very first conversation that um, that they had with me, I was absolutely dead set on following it through. Um, because I, you know, I knew 
uh, I, I read all about it and what it involved, and I knew that um, in order for someone to need a donation, they must be in an incredibly serious, perilous situation. So my mind was made up like then and there, like whatever inconvenience um, it is on me, whatever discomfort I have to go through, it is absolutely worth it. And it's absolutely nothing compared to this person that's in need of this donation. Absolutely. So, um, so you went into a hospital? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's there were the the there first were stages. Yeah, there were a couple of stages. Okay. So um, you yeah. didn't go into the hospital the next day. No, not the next day. There's uh yeah. So there's a bit of preparation of of me, the donor that that happened, but also at the other end, they they took me through this along the way. There's a lot of preparation that has to happen for the patient who receives the donation. Right, and I mean, my mind's just boggling. How do they receive the donation? How do you give it? Yeah, like it's yeah. So yes. please. So so, so I guess in uh, chronological order, um, so the first step that I had to go through was a uh, like a, a confirmatory testing, so where they take another blood sample from me and they double check that I, um, they confirm that I am actually a tissue match for the person that needs the donation. So after they checked that um, and they confirmed that, you know, I was the right person to donate, um, then they prescribed me a, a really interesting um, drug, which is called, for the, for the nerds out there, for the bio, you know, biomedical science nerds, it's called granulite colony stimulating factor. Um, and it's an artificial, um, it's a synthetic, uh, synthetically produced hormone, of, um, which is a version of a hormone that the um, human body produces to stimulate the growth of bone marrow stem cells. Um, and, you know, the, the history of this, I won't go into the history of it, but it's a, the history of this drug and this, this area of, you know, of biomedical science was um, pioneered by the Australian scientist Don Metcalf, um, who worked here in Melbourne, um, sadly no longer with us, but uh, they made some really major discoveries, um, you know, to make this procedure possible, basically. So they prescribed me this drug, which apparently is only ever prescribed to cancer patients. So, you know, this is the only case where a healthy person is prescribed this drug. So I had to take four daily injections. I actually had the, the doctor showed me how to take the first injection and then they left it to me to inject myself each morning in the four days leading up to the donation. Um, meanwhile, the, uh, the, person who is going to receive the donation, um, bear in mind that I never actually met this person. They're no relation to me. Um, to this day, I still don't know who they are. Um, but uh, on their end, they were going through some pretty uh, severe preparation to receive this. So what has to happen to the patient is they're basically exposed to a lethal dose of radiotherapy. Oh, my goodness. The purpose of that is to completely kill off all of the remaining bone marrow tissue in their body. Well, you would <laughs> want to make sure that you didn't want to back out after that have had that um, potentially lethal dose. Yeah, absolutely. Radiation so, therapy. Yeah. Wow. So at that point, a couple of days before the, the donation, that is, that is a very clear point of no return. So, you know, this person goes from having a very, very high likelihood that leukemia is going to kill them to being guaranteed to die after they have this, um, have this, you know, this radiotherapy. Uh, so yeah, 
basically from that point, you know, the moral obligation on the donor is really ramped up because if you back out, you know, a day or two before the donation, like, you know, this person's definitely going to die, which is, um, which, you know, and, and the thought of backing out never crossed my mind. I was, you know, I was absolutely resolute. You are listening to Lost in Science, and today we are speaking to Ollie Barron, science communicator and bone marrow donor. So the day of the donation itself, I did go into a hospital. Um, I actually did this uh, in Sydney when I was living there a couple of years ago. So um, it was at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Um, uh, So basically the collection itself um, takes about four hours uh, I went in early in the morning and they strapped me into a uh, an apheresis machine, which is basically, um, you know, a blood collection machine. Uh, so for those, you know, those listeners who've done a, a plasma donation, um, it it is pretty similar to that, except it's the one I was on was a bit more complicated. So I had a needle in one arm that was collecting my blood and um, passing through the machine and um, and separating off the, the the bone marrow stem cells that were circulating in my body, um, and then another tube was uh, hooked into my other arm, which was circulating the blood back in. And I I, sh- I forgot to mention actually that the whole point of the drug that I was given before the procedure is to stimulate the growth of extra bone marrow stem cells. So in the days leading up to the donation, my bone marrow was just going crazy, like growing extra, extra cells that then circulated freely in my body. Is that something that you could you could tap into? Like you could really feel? You're like, oop, just popped another set stem cell. <laughs> um, well, you know, they they actually said that, you know, one of the side effects is that you feel bone pain in the lead up. And, and did you? Yeah, so sort of in my lower back and my bonitis. in my hips, <laughs> bit of bonitis. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't very bad. You know, I, w- I had a fairly physical job at the time, and it didn't stop me from going to work or you know doing doing things that I would normally do. It really just felt like you know like when you go to the gym uh, for the first time in ages and you feel a little bit sore afterwards. So it was yeah, it was um, perfectly manageable for me. And, you know, really wasn't a, an inconvenience at all. So, um, yeah, that method of, of um, you know, having uh, the bone marrow stem cells stimulated and collected, um, you know, from an apheresis machine, that's actually the most common method that they use for collecting bone marrow stem cells um, from a donor. Um, there's a bit of a misconception out there, apparently, that... Um, that uh, in order to donate bone marrow, you have to have like a painful procedure where they j- drill a giant needle into your pelvis, which is what they used to do in the old days um, before this technique was uh, really developed. And they do save that as a last resort. But in most cases now, it's this really like low invasive procedure, which is you know essentially just like a, a, a four hour um, plasma donation. Fantastic. And um, would you... Um would you recommend people uh, register and would you do it again? I would, yes, to both questions. I would absolutely recommend everybody out there 
everyone who is able to donate blood. And I know that, um, you know, I, I don't want to make uh, anyone feel pressure or feel guilty if they're not able to. It's really for, you know, for those who are able to. Um, if you can donate blood, if you do regularly donate blood, next time you go in, you know, say, say to them, hey, I want to sign up for the bone marrow donor registry. And they, you know, they'll know how to, how to sign you up and what to do. Um, yeah. So, and, and again, like the more people that are on the registry, the better the chances, um, that they will find a match for people who are in need of it. And yeah, I'm, I am back on the register now. I was, um, kind of taken off the register for two years after the donation, just, you know, and that's, I suppose, a welfare thing to make sure, um, you know, I was healthy and everything afterwards. You don't burn out. Yeah, yeah, to make yeah. sure my uh, my bone marrow doesn't burn out. Uh, and I didn't have any adverse effects whatsoever afterwards. Um, you know, I felt a little bit tired that afternoon, but that was probably because I got up early um, <laughs> <laughs> and I had a little nap. But, um, yeah, I would absolutely do it again. Um, and best part and most challenging part of the experience? I suppose the best part is, um, you know, the knowledge that you – uh, that well, that I was able to save somebody's life, which is, um, yeah, they, you know, the the people at the registry contacted me about six months later to to give me an update, um, and they told me that the person I was, they were able to tell me it was a woman interstate, um, uh, but they they didn't give me any more information than that. But they told me that she she actually made a recovery and was able to leave hospital and and uh, go home with her family for Christmas, which was incredible. Just, um, you know, like when, when they told me about it, like I had to have a bit of a bit of a moment to myself. It was quite emotional um, to hear that. And yeah, just, it's just incredible to know that you've, you've helped save somebody's life. Um, and apart from that, uh, you know, I, it, it really, was um, I did nerd out quite a lot finding out all the science uh, around it. Um, the day that I was actually there in the hospital giving the donation, there was a woman from the company that manufactures the apheresis machines. She was doing a bit of in-service training with the nurses there. Um, and she had a bit of time where she was just kind of like uh, waiting around without much to do. So I was just asking her all these questions about how the machine works and, um, you know, and all of that. So, so that was kind of cool finding out the science. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Ollie, and thank you for sharing your experiences. Um, hopefully you will have inspired everybody listening to this to jump onto uh, www.abmdr.org.au, which is, I think, where you can find out more information about becoming a bone marrow donor. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ollie. Thanks, Claire. You are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. Now, you may remember in early August 2017, Melbourne teenager Sam Canizé was attacked by mysterious sea creatures while dangling his legs in the water at Brighton. Photos of his bloodied legs and video of the animals feasting on a piece of meat went viral around the world. Now, Melbourne Museum marine biologist Dr Jennifer Walker-Smith has had the opportunity to examine the creatures and I'm speaking to her to find out exactly what they were and whether we should now all be afraid to go in the water. Welcome to Lost in Science, Jennifer. Hi, Chris. Okay, so I guess the, the question we want to know is what were these creatures and why did they attack Sam Canizé? 
The creatures we think were uh, Lysianacid amphipods, and amphipods are a type of crustacean, so they're related to shrimps and lobsters and crabs, but they're much smaller, so less than a centimetre big. Okay, so why were they so vicious in this particular uh, circumstance? We're not really sure. Um, we can really only guess. We think Sam probably was just in the wrong place at, a, at the wrong time, but Lysianacid amphipods are known to... Um, to feed on meat, so their main diet is dead fish and dead crabs, anything that's lying dead in the water. Now, that's not to say that Sam's legs were dead, but they have a really strong sense of smell. It's not really smell, it's chemo. They can detect chemicals in the water. So if for some reason Sam may have had a cut on his leg or his legs smelled particularly nice for some reason, the animals were attracted and they tend to swarm a bit like a, um, a, blow, a group of blowflies might swarm on uh, a piece of rubbish or meat. Okay, so has this sort of thing happened before to people? I've had lots of anecdotal reports of people being bitten by uh, amphipods and people have told me that it really hurts and it bleeds a lot. Um, I've had reports of divers being bitten around their mask but most of the time people feel the bites and they get out of the water and they brush them off. But um, in this instance, Sam was standing in the water for about half an hour and the water was really cold. He said his legs went numb, so he didn't actually feel the bites, which is why he probably sustained so many bites and, and bled so much. Okay, so now you say that these... Um, it sounds like these creatures are fairly common. Is this a common species or genus of amphipods or was there something anything unusual about them when you've had a look at them? There's nothing unusual about them. They're known to occur in the bay. They occur all around Australia. Um, they tend to be a shallow water species. Why? No, we don't really know why why this why this happened. They're, they're always there. If you throw a piece of meat in, as Sam's dad did, into the, into the water, they'll be attracted to that. And that's actually how um, taxonomists, people who describe new species, how they actually catch them if they want to uh, do a, a diversity survey or describe new species, they'll actually set out baited traps because they know that the animals will detect the bait and come in and that's how you can catch a lot all at once. Okay, so you said earlier that they are scavengers. Is this what they, they do in the, um, in the ecosystem? They eat dead matter? Is that, is that basically their function? Yeah, that's exactly what they do. So with, if we didn't have these lysine acid amphipods, we'd have a, a bay full of dead and rotting fish and crabs and all sorts of things. So, yeah, their main role is to, to break down and, and decompose all those dying um, sea creatures. Okay, now... In the initial report, some people referred to them as things like uh, sea lice and sea fleas. I'm guessing that those aren't accurate descriptions. Is that correct? Um, not really. Common names um, can be really variable and can be quite confusing. Sea lice is generally a term used for isopods and sometimes copepods, and they're a crustacean that tends to parasitise fish. Sea fleas are what we is the common name we tend to use for amphipods and that's probably because we well, probably use that common name because there's a terrestrial type of amphipod that you won't find living under seaweed that's washed up on the beach and if anyone's ever picked up a piece of seaweed that's washed up on the beach there'll be lots of little hopping crustaceans that jump out and um, 
suppose they jump a bit like fleas, so we call them sea fleas. And so the crustaceans, the Lycian acid amphipods that bit Sam, are related to those beach hoppers or sand hoppers that you find under um, seaweed that's been washed up. Oh, yeah, I think we, we probably all have, have seen those around the place. Um, so are there many different kinds of amphipods or any particularly notable amphipods that you, that you can um, point out to us? There's thousands of different species of amphipods uh, and most of them are less than a centimetre. But in the deep sea, there's some giant ones and they can actually grow up to about 28 centimetres. The, the largest ones have been recorded from the... Um, the trench, trenches off New Zealand in about 6,000 metres of water and they're about 28, 28 to 30 centimetres big, so huge. And they're known to eat the, the flesh or the carcasses of uh, whales and things that have fallen all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. I've, yeah, I've been whale watching off the coast of New Zealand and we have the, the sperm whales there. And would that be the kind of thing that they're eating, that sperm whales that fall to the bottom of the very, very deep ocean? Yes, that's right. That's amazing. So um, as a marine biologist, um, what are you trying to research then when you look at these creatures like this? What, what kind of things are you looking for and are, and are interested in? I'm interested in the diversity of crustaceans that we have in southeastern Australia and in the bay and also trying to get the message out there that the, the diversity in the bay is huge. Um, you don't need to go to the Barrier Reef to see lots and lots of different things. We have an enormous array of species in the bay. And um, just to let people know that there's there's more animals out there than just fish and crabs and, and lobsters. And they're just as beautiful and just as um, detailed and intricate and just as important in the ecosystem as the larger species. Do we ever find new species in, uh, in somewhere close like the bay? All the time, um, believe it or not. Not so much for crabs and the bigger crustaceans, but the smaller crustaceans, we're finding new species all the time. So when you have someone find something notable like this, you're happy for them to, to send you in to have a bit of a look at? Um, we are, yes. I don't want to commit you to do anything there, really. No, we, unfortunately, the museum doesn't have a lot of taxonomists, so we have um, a limited number of experts. But when something like this comes along, we really try and... Um, identify what it is and really answer the questions, particularly when it's a health issue like this was. Okay, so I guess the, the big question is, is this a new uh, reason to be scared of going into the water at Australian beaches or is it just business as usual? If you haven't been before, don't worry about it too much. Yeah, I'd say it's just business as usual. It was a pretty um, unusual set of circumstances, the fact that Sam stood so long in one spot, the fact that he didn't feel the bites... Um, yeah, normally people would feel the feel the bite or be moving around, brush brush the uh, amphipod off or jump out of the water. So it was just a really unusual set of circumstances, I think. Great. And at the very least, it's drawn attention to our uh, crustacean friends that we might not have thought about otherwise. That's right. Well, thank you very much again for talking to us, Jennifer. No problem. That was Dr Jennifer Walker-Smith from Melbourne Museum. Right, that is it for another spectacular episode of Science. Uh, I think we all had a good time there and learnt a lot, didn't we, Claire? Bloody good time. A bloody good time. Uh, Lost in Science, of course, it is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across this Australia 
um, on the Community Radio Network. Uh, we would love you to get in touch with us, I believe. People can contact us. Absolutely. Ask things. questions on our Facebook page, which is Lost in Science on 3CR. Absolutely. Or you could email us if you have a question. There's something you've been dying to know and no one will tell you. We will be that person. person piece, people. people. We will be those we'll be people. We will be the ones. Um, the we'll, we'll investigate and we we'll find out. Yeah, we'll we will do all the research. We will leave no stone unturned. Except maybe some of those stones. No. No stone. No stone. No stone. Completely stoneless. Um, yeah, so you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1, thereabouts. Uh, you can also look up our podcast. We are on your various pod- favourite podcasting services. Uh, if you do find us through iTunes, I could encourage that. And if you do that, please give us a good rating and a review because that, that, will, you know, that will help other people to find us on, those, on their search engines. That's the yeah, way these things work. The more, the more people give us a thumbs up or... However, you do the rating on <laughs> yeah. iTunes. I think it's a star system. Yes, High, higher star ratings mean more people will see our podcast. We know what we're talking about. Um, of course, you can also listen to us on demand on three crorgau website, or you can just tune into your friendly radio station same time next week. And once again, Claire, Stu, Manisha, and Chris will get lost, lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.